I want to just start on a, a sad note, because uh, this is the, the first uh, Royal Highland show since the death of March of Joe Watson, who was the farming editor, as all of us know, of the Press and Journal. Uh, I met Joe first uh, in 1985, when he was a trainee reporter and I was a trainee politician. Uh, and uh, I'll miss him a great deal at events like this, and of course the Turra show, where I met him every single year uh, since then. Uh, but uh, looking back, when the first uh, Royal Highland Show was held on Boxing Day in 1822, approximately 65 cattle were exhibited on an acre of ground, and the prize money totaled 75 bucks. I can see some of you nodding, you were probably exhibiting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, the sort of transition, uh, Mrs. Salmond opened uh, a, a, a uh, an exhibition uh, area for, uh, for art for, for George Pirrie from uh, Aberdeenshire uh, a couple of months back in Leith and he was exhibiting in the opening uh, the breeds of cattle over the years that the Royal uh, Highland Show Society's uh, paintings done in magnificent prints and I think George is exhibiting some of the shows so if you, get, if you haven't seen it then go and see it because you'd have to you'd have to be totally soulless not to be extraordinarily impressed by that, that transition of cattle breeds over, over the period. But now, compared to the 65 cattle an acre of ground and the prime money of £75, uh, this is the biggest event in the agricultural year by far. There are 5,000 sheep, cattle and horses across 110 acres of land and a total prize money of £200,000. It's therefore a perfect showcase for the quality of for food, farming and drink sectors and it's a great pleasure of course to be here. So this has already been a big week for uh, food and drink in Scotland. Yesterday Richard Lockhead uh, uh, launched the next phase of the Scottish Government's food and drink strategy. Uh, Richard is the Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs, Food and the Environment now. It's a change in job title which highlights the Government's determination to provide the leadership and support that this great industry deserves. Uh, and that's maybe one of the great differences between the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster Parliament. We occasionally add to the title and responsibilities of the Agricultural Secretary. They just keep changing the Agricultural Secretary uh, about once a year, actually. Uh, and I think uh, the addition of food to Richard's responsibilities does emphasise uh, and the understanding that uh, the, the new direction of farming and food production in Scotland and the integrated nature to make this an even more successful industry. So the document we published yesterday proposes a, a new aspiration for Scotland, becoming a good food nation. The quality of our natural ingredients is our selling point in countries across the world. But we need to be a land of food and drink, not only in what we produce, but also in what we eat, what we sell, and what we serve on a daily basis. So when you consider the, the scale, for example, of some of Scotland's public health challenges, that is a hugely important task. For example, we know that bad diet contributes significantly to conditions such as heart disease and diabetes, and therefore the vision of a good food nation recognises that food and drink is central to our collective well-being, as well as central to our economic prosperity. If that's David Cameron, tell him I'm available for a debate. <laughs> If it's Owen Patterson, tell him I'm going to get on to him in a minute or two. <laughs> now, the excellence of our food and drink industry provides the basis for achieving that aspiration. It is Owen Patterson. He'd always phone twice. <laughs> if it's reverse charges, it's certainly Owen Patterson. 
In recent years, the sector has enjoyed huge success. So food manufacturing in Scotland has grown three times more quickly than in the rest of the UK, by 13% rather than 4%. Since 2007, retail sales of Scottish food and drink brands in the UK have risen by approximately 30%. Overseas exports have risen by 50%. Now, some of these exports, of course, are traditional. Beef, salmon, malt whiskey. Others are slightly more innovative. Yesterday, I spoke at our National Economic Forum with, uh, with uh, James Watt, uh, uh, and who runs the Brewdog uh, Brewery. Uh, Brewdog began with two friends selling beer in the, the back of a truck. Last year, it had exports of 18 million. It now sells to 42 countries, runs a network of bars in cities such as Tokyo, Gothenburg, and San Paulo in Brazil. So it does give me great pleasure to know that if distressed, lost, football supporters of any team at all in the World Cup are gathering in San Paolo tonight, they'll be able to drown their sorrows with a beer brewed in Aberdeenshire. <laughs> and also it gives me even greater pleasure to know that Scotland in some way is represented at this year's <laughs> World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I was going around the Coca-Cola plant in East Kilbride a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh, it was the 50th anniversary of Coca-Cola in Scotland. And, uh, the managing director, the chief executive of Coca-Cola Worldwide was with me, and we'd been shown around by a guy called John McCafferty, and he had uh, the mic, and he was doing the, the walkthrough uh, for, the, uh, for the guests. Uh, so this is how McCafferty described, because Coca-Cola and East Kilbride produce the bottles. They produce the bottles for... Uh, for the World Cup commemorative bottles. Is that not right, Jim? That's right. <laughs> Jim Fox. <laughs> I just noticed him with the Coca-Cola company. He ain't a plant, incidentally. <laughs> I didn't know he was here. Uh, but nonetheless, there was me and the chief executive of Coca-Cola Worldwide, and McCafferty is on the microphone. So this is how McCafferty described uh, Scotland's position with regard to football. He said that, that Scotland, as a nation, after much deliberation, has decided not to participate in this year's World Cup. <laughs> but such is the generosity of our hearts that we have decided to produce the commemorative bottle for football fans across the planet. <laughs> I took a careful note of the McCafferty logic, and I shall be using that at every opportunity. So look, these success stories, whether it's uh, East Bride producing the fantastic commemorative bottles, and I should say they're also producing a beautiful tartan bottle for homecoming uh, for this year. Uh, or whether it's Brewdog's extraordinary success, or whether it's the, the enormous expansion across the international exports of food and drink. They're due to our natural resources, to the skills of those in the sector, but also devolution, the parliament coming has helped. It's created a government and a parliament with the ability to give Scotland's food and drink the importance it deserves. It's prioritised food grants for 175 projects promoting the industry overseas. It's established a highly <coughs> successful partnership under Scotland Food and Drink. So the point I'm going to make this afternoon is that although devolution, in my submission, has been good for farming, food, and for rural Scotland, independence would be better. It'll be better in terms of domestic policy, since we'll have the full range of powers we need to support these sectors. It'll also be better for us in international negotiations. So let me start with a very straightforward example about the support for the red meat sector. 
Uh, last uh, August, I wrote to David Cameron about the red meat levy. I followed it up with uh, a direct contact at the joint ministerial meetings. And that's used by Quality Meat Scotland, as we all know, to promote Scottish beef and lamb and pork. Nine years ago, nine years ago, uh, the Radcliffe Review of Agricultural Levies recommended that livestock levies which are collected at abattoirs should be returned to promotional bodies based in the animal's country of birth. Now, obviously, that's an important issue for us, since a large number of Scottish lambs, Scottish pigs and cattle go through English and Welsh abattoirs. Now, the Radcliffe Review simple solution has not been implemented, and David Cameron made it clear to me in his reply to me it won't be, not any time soon, under his government. So as a result, Quality Meat Scotland lost out in £1.6 million last year, which went to the levy bodies down south. So money taken from Scottish farmers, which should have been used to promote and market our livestock, is instead being used to promote meat from elsewhere in these islands. It's a ridiculous situation, and it should have been addressed under devolution. It certainly will be resolved under independence. Even more ind importantly, independence will ensure that Scotland can represent ourselves on the international stage. At the moment, the United Kingdom government speaks for us all in international negotiations with our key third country export market. I was amused this morning, and I'll tell you, this is a great way to wake up. I managed to wake up and listen to Owen Patterson. And if you ever want to wake up and cheerfully address the rest of the day, you should listen to, to Owen. I, I know a lot of the humour is unintentional, but nonetheless, it's a very bright and breezy way uh, to, uh, to open the day. Uh, Owen this morning claimed that Scotch whisky sales in China were a great success for UK diplomacy. And Scotland, he puts it, will just never have the reach. It doesn't have the personnel to work with China to clamp down on counterfeit Scots. Now, I was amused at first because uh, it's a reminder that one of the more absurd scare stories from William Hague actually said a major risk of independence was that UK embassies would no longer promote Scotch whisky. I'm sure, incidentally, that the multi-billion pound Scots whisky industry would probably get by, but the important point of amusement, because as we know to our cost, the embassies charge us for the receptions to promote Scotch whisky. <laughs> they actually charge for each and every one of these receptions. But Owen went on to suggest I'd been, you know, I must be imagining things. You know, when I thought I was in the meeting in July 2010, when Xu Xiaoping Deputy Minister Asquip, the uh, General Administration of Quality Supervision, Inspection and Quarantine in China made the commitment uh, to grant the geographical indicator of origin status to Scotch whisky. I was also probably imagining things when I led the earlier delegation to China in 2009, uh, which made the first substantive progress on this issue. Of course, at that time, and this is maybe why Owen doesn't know these things, he wasn't in office when the agreement with China was signed. Uh, so he might not have been aware uh, of the Scottish Government's role. It, does, it doesn't seem to be aware that the first developed country to negotiate a trade deal on food with China was New Zealand, a nation of 4.5 million people back in 2008. And New Zealand, of course, has been able to sell lamb to China for several years, and Scotland is still waiting for that opportunity. Now, just to get some actual proof of these matters, I brought along a couple of photos, well, actually one photo, uh, which I'm going to ask you to pass round. Now, if you look at that photo, which is taken in 2011, it's interesting for a couple of things. Firstly, you'll notice I'm a lot thinner. <laughs> I.e., the 5-2 is working. 
It's not that I'm eating less, I promise you. I'm just eating more carefully and properly. But you see, that's me, uh-huh. uh, and that's Premier League. See, Owen today said that he personally, this is Owen Patterson, had met with Chinese officials in Guangdong. And then he went on to say, these doors, that's the meeting with the officials in Guangdong, wouldn't be open to an independent Scotland. Well, there's me, you see, and there's Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> kind of top man, right? Uh, we are toasting. We're actually in the Great Hall of Edinburgh Castle, as it happens. And we're toasting. And what we're toasting is the deal we've just signed uh, to allow Scottish salmon into China. Uh, before that deal was signed, the total export of Scottish salmon to China in 2010 was 50,000 pounds, which is not very much. Last year it was 50 million pounds, an increase of a thousand times. And there is us toasting the deal which we just signed. Now, so with due respect to Owen Patterson, uh, I think Premier League counts for just a wee bit more than the nameless officials he was meeting in Guangdong. So this nonsense that as Owen put it, doors would not be open to Scotland. It's belied by the experience of other countries like New Zealand of Scotland's size. It's belied by what we've already been able to do under devolution. Incidentally, uh, Premier Lee uh, left uh, the Great Hall of Edinburgh Castle in the early hours of the morning. His staff were going a bit frantic because he was enjoying himself uh, so much. We, we sang uh, Old Lang Syne in Mandarin and then in Scots. Uh, he also uh, presented the quake to the, the police spike band. Uh, and then the next day, he went down uh, to uh, a reception, to a white tie reception with the, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, he had a 15-minute speech, the first eight minutes of which he spent saying what a great place Scotland was. Uh, and then at the end of his speech, he lifted his glass, much to the amusement, I think, of the Foreign Secretary and his guests, and said, Sladjava! <laughs> so, with great respect to our own, I think we'll probably get by without his presence in Guangdong, if that's all the very same. See, the Scottish Government, working with industry, has been able to deliver major successes, opening up the USA markets uh, to our beef, uh, the Chinese market to our salmon. Uh, we are still looking for more progress. But we're still losing tens of millions of pounds each year by not being able to sell lamb to China, beef to Japan, whiskey to India in its proper form. Opening up those markets requires focused attention by a sovereign government. That rarely happens. At present, Richard Lockhead was told by the Foreign Office during his mission to the Far East that beef exports to Japan were not on their list of priorities. With independence, food and drink would be a key priority for Scotland's network of overseas offices. The negotiations we need would be likely to happen much, much more quickly. We'd also benefit hugely from being able to represent ourselves in the European Union. First, we'd be free from any threat of being forced out against our will in 2017, eh, when the promised Cameron referendum may or may not take place. Secondly, we currently suffer in terms of common agricultural policy payments. In fact, we can now quantify, and this is what I'm going to say today, among other things, how much we lose out by not having that seat at the top table. Last week, Richard Lockhead announced uh, cap allocations for Scotland between now and 2020. It's a package which provides important support for farmers, especially for productive land, and whose rural development allocations provide significant further funding for forestry, environmental protection, and rural broadband. It involved, of necessity, some very tough decisions indeed. And we recognise that not everyone can benefit, 
But I think it's fair to say, looking at the response in the farming press and across the industry, people regard it as a fair allocation made under difficult circumstances. I know there was a particular welcome, and so there should be, for the £45 million of new money that has now been set aside out of other budgets for improvements to the beef industry and the supply chain. And I'm very grateful for the tireless work of Jim McLaren and his Beef 2 2020 group who gave us the recommendations today on how best to use that additional funding from other budgets. But the really frustrating thing about last week's CAP announcement is that it could and should have been so much better for Scotland's farmers. Pillar 1 of the CAP, direct farming support, Scotland currently receives the third lowest rate of payment per hectare than any country in the U European Union. By 2020, under the deal negotiated by the UK Government, we will receive the lowest rate in the entire European Union. Not only will we be bottom of the table, but the gap between Scotland and the rest is widening. We will get €68 Euros per hectare less than the second lowest country. An independent Scotland could have benefited from a rule that by 2019 no member state, no member state will receive less than €196 Euros per hectare in direct payments to farmers. That would have meant instead of a 12% real terms cut to our budget, we would have had a 34% rise. That in itself would have resulted in payments to our farmers worth an additional billions of euros, 850 million pounds, 1 billion euros in the period to 2020. So when it's suggested that we would somehow not get such a good deal as an independent country, can I put it to you, you cannot by definition get less than the minimum. No negotiation can you end up with less than the minimum that's been set. And Scotland, with the negotiation led by Owen Paterson, has ended up with €1 billion Euros less than the minimum. Now, as many of you know, two years ago, the European Union partially recognised how bad a deal Scotland gets. As a result, it awarded the UK Government an uplift of more than €200 million. Euros. The increase was solely as a result of the low payments here in Scotland per hectare, but the funding did not come to Holyrood. It went to the Treasury, and only 16% was then passed on to Scotland. Now, the UK Government's argument for withholding the money was that Scottish farms are very large. <laughs> well, that was actually the reason for getting the money in the first place. So Scotland gets more money, as they say, per farmer than the rest of the UK, even if we get so much less per hectare. However, at exactly the same time as the UK Government had been making that argument, it changed its own rules. Producers with less than five hectares of land don't count as farms anymore a move which significantly reduces the number of eligible farms in England. Payments per farm in England will go up substantially as a result, so that removes most of the differential with Scotland. So the UK Government's only argument, an argument repeated by Owen Patterson this morning, doesn't hold any water at all. It's purely and simply the shortchanging of Scottish agriculture, not just according to our arguments, but according to their own logic. But one thing I wanted to add today that perhaps the most significance doesn't come just from direct payments where we get a bad deal. It's also in rural development funding, pillar two of the CAP. Scotland gets the lowest rate of support for rural development anywhere in the European Union. If we had, and I think it's a reasonable analogy, a reasonable comparison to make, if we'd had be able to negotiate a similar deal to the Irish Republic, 
in terms of funding per hectare for the period to 2020, this would have given us another three billion euros. Instead, we received half a billion euros under Pillar 2. An extra 2.5 billion is an enormous sum of money. Indeed, we have calculated, the government economists, that this entire additional subsidy would support an additional 5,500 jobs across Scotland, such as the drive of the rural economy and the food sector through the Scottish economy. We could have quadrupled the budget for helping the food and drink sector. We could have trebled our support for new entrant families, farmers and our funding to enhance Scotland's protected sites. We could have doubled the support for farmers in the most remote areas. The consequences of what's happening are far-reaching. To give just one example, I spoke about Scotland's food and drink industry earlier. It's entering in many ways in terms of production and exports and demand for our products a golden age. It's actually so successful that we're starting in many areas to encounter limitations on the supply of our product. We could sell even more beef and dairy if we had more farming activity in these sectors. We need to be able to support existing producers and encourage new entrant farmers. Our cap settlement makes that much harder. So the UK's negotiating position on CAP is potentially damaging to one of Scotland's great economic success stories through the recession. Now, it's incomprehensible that Scotland is losing out. And by Scotland, I don't mean the Scottish Government, I mean Scotland. I mean our farmers, crofters, land managers, the stewards of natural Scotland. It's our rural businesses, the supply chain, the families, the communities who are missing out because we don't have direct representation in Europe. Now, there's something puzzling about this. We were told today, in fact, we're often told how much we benefit from the United Kingdom government's expertise, its size, its clout in international representation. So the obvious question is, given that clout, that size, that prestige, why do we end up with such a bad deal? At heart, this isn't about mistakes, although the UK government makes plenty of these and no doubt the Scottish government makes a number as well. It's not actually about bad intentions either. It's not about malevolence. It's about priorities. It is a fundamental and inevitable consequence of the fact that decisions about Scotland are being taken in a parliament where Scotland only has 9% of the MPs. At Westminster, none of the three largest parties are in favour of production-related income support for farmers. And so inevitably, no United Kingdom government argues for better levels of support. The Treasury holds the whip hand in terms of the UK rebate and the consequences of any spending for that UK rebate. At Holyrood, there's been a different view. It's not just held by this government, it's held by all of the major parties. I often talk uh, about the democratic deficit in Scotland. I'm 59 years old, and for more than half, I know you're all thinking you don't look it, especially after <laughs> the 5-2 diet. Yeah, of course. For more than half my life, well, maybe you weren't thinking that. <laughs> well, but for more than half my life, Scotland has been ruled by parties with no majority. The last four UK elections, the Conservatives in Scotland have won zero, one, one, and one seat, respectively. But what we can see with income support for farmers is something even more striking. It's not just voters who make different choices in Scotland, it's the parties themselves. The same political parties hold different views depending on whether they're speaking in the Scottish Parliament or at Westminster. That's not surprising. Food and drink is five times, five times more important to the Scottish economy than to the rest of the UK. Many parts of Scotland depend on the food and agriculture industries. 
Nowhere in Scotland is far or distant from rural or agricultural land, and therefore all the political parties want to ensure the sustainability of rural and remote communities. It's an issue where there's a fundamental divergence of priority between the two parliaments. And the consequence is that farmers in Scotland are unlikely to ever, to ever, get the deal they deserve under current constitutional arrangements. See, the question of priorities goes beyond farming and agriculture. It's apparent across our society or economy. It directly affects the wider sustainability and prosperity of rural Scotland. Let's take, for example, uh, digital connectivity. The Scottish Government's Highlands and Islands contract with BT is one of the biggest engineering contracts anywhere in Europe. It involves 800 kilometres of fibre on land, 400 kilometres on the seabed. Last year, fewer than 4% of premises in the Highland Local Authority had access to next-generation broadband. By March 2016, 84% will. More than 170,000 homes and businesses will ensure that the progress continues after 2016. We've reversed every previous situation in terms of infrastructure investment, where we've taken those who have had the hint end of every previous decision and put them at the very forefront of the decisions that are being made now. But we still face constraint. Spectrum auctions are designed at UK level. That's a major reason why third-generation mobile coverage in Scotland lagged more than six years behind the coverage in Sweden. The 4G mobile auction took account more account of rural needs, but several Scottish Government proposals were ignored. For example, we suggested setting coverage requirements for each local authority area to ensure the fair treatment for the different parts of the country. With independence, we could use spectrum licensing, together with the regulatory and the tax powers, to develop communications infrastructure that Scotland needs. It's an area where independence would make a big difference to rural and remote communities, because with independence, we can sign policies which match our priorities and, indeed, the very topography of our country. Now, you can already see some of the ways in which an independent Scotland will give new powers and a new voice. On Monday, I launched Empowering Our Island Communities, which promised steps to recognise the unique status of our islands in the constitutional framework of an independent Scotland. I also made a number of practical proposals to give new responsibilities and rights to these island communities. In November, the first ever rural parliament will meet in Oban. It will emulate successful models established in countries such as Sweden and Ireland, Hungary. It will provide a forum to ensure that needs of rural and remote communities are given the importance they deserve. It's a demonstration of our commitment to rural Scotland. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, the fundamental argument for independence is that the people who take the best, the very best decisions about Scotland are the people who live and work in our country. Nobody will do, nobody will do a better job than the people who live and work in this country creating the sort of country we want to see, reflecting our own priorities and our own values. And one of these priorities, one of these values, is a sense of cohesion, a view that no region, no area, no community should be neglected or denied the ability to flourish. Independence gives us the powers we need to create sustainable prosperity in every part of the country. More effective support for food and drink, for agriculture from rural areas is one part, a very important part, but it is a wider ambition. The sustainable prosperity, the cohesion, needs to be worked for. Independence is not about thinking that everything is going to be delivered to us on a plate. It's not about waking up the day after independence and finding you've got three taps, whiskey, oil and water. It's about setting national objectives 
and working together over a period of time to make this country more prosperous and more sustainable. It can be done. It's not about thinking that we'll wake up one day and these things will happen. It's about getting the powers we need, using them well, and working hard over a period of time. It's about having the ability to empower local communities, to support this industry more effectively, to represent Scotland's interests in international organisations. It's about using our natural resources properly, responsibly, to enable our human resources to flourish. It's about making the resources work for the people, not just the people for the resources. It's about choosing to work together to build a more prosperous country and also, and equally crucially, a fairer society. That will be good for rural Scotland in my submission. Of course, it will be good for all of Scotland as well. Thank you very much indeed.